Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to amazing women who are making a real difference. With our podcast, you'll get to hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges our guests have overcome, how their backgrounds and values help to shape who they are today, and how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. So joining me today is Divya D'Amato, a fearless champion for sustainability and supply chains. Divya got an early start in e-commerce, heading up Walmart's supply chain operations. She is also the founder and CEO of GoodOps, where she partners with companies who are committed to sustainability and helps them to do it well and profitably. So let's hear all about it directly from Divya. Thank you for joining our show. Thank you for having me. So let's dive in. I, you know, I always like to have our guests share about their background. You know, our backgrounds are what shapes us going forward. And you have such an interesting one, a political science major at Boston College, who, as you shared it, stumbled into supply chain as a buyer and never looked back. So could you maybe just share with our listeners a little bit more about your background and also some of your early influencers? Yeah, no, thank you so much. Yeah, so I I was I grew up in Massachusetts in a, in a suburb outside of Boston. My parents both came from India, so I was the first. My, my sisters and I are the first generation American born. Uh, my dad is a chemical engineer, and my mother was a lawyer in India. But after coming to the states, went into banking, and actually currently also got her master's recently in psychology, and is actually a therapist for um, for drug and alcohol sort of substance abuse. So just wow. you know, <laughs> yeah, very academic, very much pursuit for education, and and you know, and, and even in terms of my upbringing within that, you know, my dad um, and my mom were both also very spiritual and from, from Indian religions. My, my father is Jain and my mother is Hindu and both religions, I would say also always really taught about the, the priorities of life and how important it was and, and how much we really need to think about nonviolence and thinking about others. And so that the religion, especially Jainism, really focuses a lot on vegetarianism and that all life is equal. And so from a very early days, I thought a lot about my role in the universe and my role in my community and my role even in, in the things that I was eating. So that was- I love it. Wow. I think also another really interesting about my upbringing was the small town that we grew up in. Uh, my family was one of the only Indian families in the town. I was the only Indian in my grade. There was very little diversity in our community. And, and I would say, you know, it was relatively pretty tolerant, but there was just um, a lot of lack of exposure. And so there was a lot of trying to assimilate into the American culture. Well, luckily, I had some really fantastic friends. One of my best friends was, you know, Puerto Rican, and, and the other one was more, you know, a, a kind of classic American. And, and it was just a really nice way of, of growing up. And I would say outside also that time, we had a very strong Indian community that we would also see frequently to keep up the Indian culture as well. So community that we were able to have dinner parties or celebrate, you know, festivals like Diwali or holidays or things like that. So it was a big Indian dancing. My sisters and I did Indian dancing through our through our childhood. So it's a really important part of also, I think, shaping who I was, thinking about other cultures and the, and the duality of my own existence. And my mom was really the key role model of, of my upbringing. Um, after my parents got divorced when I was five years old, which was quite taboo for the Indian community, mm. um, my mom really just absolutely leaned into her role. She was 
just incredible in terms of her nurturing abilities um, to my sisters and I, even though she had to work five to six days a week, she still came home every day, cooked us home-cooked Indian vegetarian food, showed us the, the power of working hard, of, of having a strong work ethic, but always had a great, you know, smile on her face, loved to go to dinner, dinner parties, hosting dinner parties, dressing up nicely, and really infusing our Indian culture into our life in a, in a very graceful way. So I feel pretty lucky with as much adversity I might have had growing up, having such a strong opportunity to sort of see how how things can be balanced in the middle of adversity was really important, I think, for me as a, as a framework. Absolutely. And just the fact that you're thinking about your life and your spirituality in, you know, in, in this whole big world at that age is is unique, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was really nice. I mean, I think for, for me, because of the Jainism, for example, which is what I was raised with, it's very philosophical. It, you know, it, it, the beliefs are very much around karma, your own your own actions, your own, um, you know, kind of what you put into the world is also what you're going to get back. And and I think the whole concept of nonviolence, which is called ahimsa, you know, really resonated for me. And, and this is a time where vegetarianism was not mainstream. So, <laughs> you know, it, it was another differentiator. So not just looking being brown and being Indian, but also now my, my entire diet, you know, when I'm going to birthday parties or in the cafeteria, I was always kind of a, well, what, what are you eating? <laughs> so confident in the, in the why I think allowed me to never break from that, which I think, again, if you know where, if you know the why behind what you do, then it's, it's much easier to sort of stick with it and, and I think persevere through that opposition. And now I think, you know, majority of the, the country sees the benefits of uh, vegetarianism and veganism and all that. So it's, it's absolutely. Absolutely. And and you get to pass that on now to your family. Yeah, I'm raising uh, my daughter. Um, well, we are raising my daughter vegetarian. She's two and a half. And my husband, he was more of a classic meat eater. And he's pretty much, I'd say, 95% vegetarian now. So it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing from, um, from his background. But it's a nice thing to do together. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And I can see the, the roots of uh, sustainability in there kind of guiding you through this. Yeah, for sure. I think I think when I think of sustainability, I, I always include the social aspect as well as environmental. So really people and, and planet. And the people side really came from, again, this idea of, okay, I'm part of another country and India being so diverse and in, in, in it's just in, its, in all of its elements, but also I mean, there's this mass poverty there. Of course, there's mass success there, but just an understanding of, you know, the livelihoods of other people and how my mom might have grown up or my father or, you know, other people. And so there's just this consciousness around outside of America. There is a whole world and a whole life. And I think understanding other and people and feeling empathy and, and relating to that was a big part of my understanding of the world pretty early on. And being very grateful for everything that we had in America and just knowing that, you know, we were very lucky to be able to do a lot of the things that we were able to do and especially being women and girls and all of that. And then I think in opportunities and education was obviously a big part of my, my parents upbringing, but even still knowing that that's a luxury. And then the other part, of course, environmental, right? So understanding also just the, the ecosystems and food and how does that all work? I mean, my mom would cook, you know, fresh homemade Indian food, which meant we saw vegetables, you know, like we saw real cooking versus what I think a lot of American households, unfortunately, especially that time, weren't necessarily using, you know, eating a lot of whole foods. And so my understanding of also farming and food and where it comes from and, and how it, you know, the nutrition and how it nurtures us, I think came on uh, very on the early side. And I think just a, a sense of responsibility of the, uh, not even responsibility, but a sense of respect for the ecosystem that it took to really live a balanced life in terms of all of that. I think just, again, it seeped into my, my head a little bit, I think from those, those sort of elements of my upbringing. 
Absolutely. No, I, I, I see it. It's in your DNA. Yeah. So let's talk about, because so you went from college and you said that you kind of fell into the buy side. I mean, you have deep roots in the buying end of supply chain with both the traditional processes as well as e-commerce. You want to talk a little bit more about that and, and just the experiences that you had at, at Mercantella and then Walmart? Yeah, sure. And I would love to even reference the the first opportunity I had was a company in San Diego called PriceMart. And they were just probably my my best education. It felt like going to college <laughs> and getting a degree. <laughs> but they really taught me the A, you know, the A to Z of what does it mean to get a product from from A to B, right? Mm-hmm. Price smart was an opportunity to really understand all the different nuts and bolts of a supply chain. So, you know, what does a supplier do? How is the product made? What are the costs associated with that product? There's a cost at the end when it's at the factory, but then there's another cost called a landed cost, right? Like once that product actually moves through the supply chain. And then understanding from the retailer's perspective, and this is actually more of a traditional brick and mortar, Price Smart is basically warehouse clubs in all international markets, even though it's a US company. So the physical space of these warehouse clubs is a big part part of our understanding of buying and and the whole strategy because you had limited space on the shelves. So I really learned a lot about, you know, how do you choose the right product? What are the cost implications? When do you actually move product across the ocean based on the ocean rates, right? So there's just so much that went into kind of my education and understanding of the supply chain for my price smart days. And I think that's really, again, where I, you know, just reinforcement of, oh my gosh, right. Okay. People make products, right? They're an impact to nature. Okay. Got it. How do these products get on the shelf when we go to the store? Now I understood it to a whole different degree that I never had that, that exposure before. And I think it just made me really respect the process. I'm so intrigued by, by what it took to actually make those, make those sort of products. And so when I joined Mercantila, which was a, an e-commerce startup in San Francisco, it was sort of the, the early days of dot-com, I was able to take a lot of this knowledge that I had from PriceSmart, but able to apply it to now this sort of new digital, this digital space. And for me, it was really fascinating because now we didn't have the, the restraints of a physical shelf, right? It was, it was online. But then there was a whole new element of, of strategy and sort of innovation, which is around well, what product are you going to purchase into inventory versus what are you going to drop ship? So there was another element of the supply chain that was now becoming sort of a new thing in this in the industry and in the space. Mm-hmm. And so there's cost components as well for that, right? If you purchase it, you're going to get a better price. But of course, you have risk if that product doesn't move. If you do drop ship, you're leaving it up to your um, vendor partners to do the delivery. So there's, of course, components of there, which it's going to be costlier. But also, they're the ones that are now going to be impacting the consumer experience, right? So just, again, more elements around the supply chain sort of experience expanding with e-commerce and, and all of that. And I see a big focus on, I'm sorry, I see a big focus on logistics there too. Exactly. Logistics and, and just really understanding that all of a sudden now the touch point was, was going to be different, right? You have now come, the, the product coming via FedEx or UPS, whereas we were all used to before that, you go in, you buy something and you bring it home. So that was a really an interesting thing. And then the, the second big thing that I was responsible for at Mercantile was really educating the vendors at trade shows on what is e-commerce? <laughs> like, right. what is this whole <laughs> business? You know, many, most of them were just like, what are you talking about? I, I don't know. And how do we know it's reputable? And, and consumers were just getting, you know, kind of on board with the concept. And so this was around the time where really, if you were only a well-recognized brand, was e-commerce really working for you? It, it wasn't really yet a digital first type of environment, you know? So this was sort of that transition into just getting the big brands. And if you were an e-commerce brand, like you're only... 
your only platform to sell, your only channel was online, you built your brand through other recognized brands. So that was kind of the entry point in for a lot of online only kind of marketplaces or, or stores. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like that really helped prepare you for the next date, which was Walmart, which was that well recognized brand. Exactly. So for me, you know, once Mercantile, I was there for a couple of years and I, I really felt like, wow, what a fascinating e-commerce is just, you know, getting to this next level and, and what better company to learn from than walmart.com. And so I joined them also here in the Bay Area and I was hired as the first ever imports manager, which was, you know, super, just a combination of so much of my experience that I was really excited to be able to, to explore, you know, and, and, and help to innovate for the dot-com side of the business. And what that really meant was being able to, you know, travel to Bentonville so many times and meeting with the direct imports team there and working in collaboration with them the best practices of how Walmart stores thinks about imports and buying and their strategy. What are the tools that they're using? How do they create visibility and transparency? And, you know, as you know, supply chain and operations, it's really around that the three pillars are efficiency, right? So you want to you wanna really make sure that your product is, is moving at the lowest cost possible. It's mm-hmm. around time. You want to make sure it's moving at the fastest time or the fastest speed possible. And quality, right? You want to make sure it has the highest quality possible. And so Walmart had really perfected this in their store operation. And, and here I was now really helping to support on the, on the online side of things. I went um, several times to trade shows to China, with the buying teams, both from Walmart stores, well as .com, meeting with suppliers, and they're also teaching them about what is .com and what is this online business and really being an advocate, I would say, for the online business at that time, because it was still pretty fledgling, even though it was about $2 billion at the time in revenue, it was still- just $2 billion. <laughs> Yeah, just $2 billion, but it wasn't even 1% of Walmart stores revenue at the time. So, you know, it really was something where we had to kind of be scrappy as the dot-com business in many ways and really advocate for ourselves. And so my job was really to kind of be that bridge between the headquarters and the dot-com side, traveling to the trade shows and going to the factories in China was really just an opportunity for me to, to see these best practices, but then apply them to, to apply them to the dot-com business. It's pretty great. And it sounds like too, I mean, it sounds like it's an incredibly exciting time, but also an intense experience. I mean, you were working 24 seven there. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was another, like another degree, right? I mean, it was a, it was an opportunity to really just dive in deep and really understand supply chain on a whole other level. And I think for me, burning the midnight oil, I mean, that's part of operations. That is supply chain. I mean, you, you kind of can't let anything slip. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that my, and my boss was just such an amazing leader and was very, you know, very detail oriented and very much on, on sort of the highest standard possible. And so we started to prepare for holiday, for example, um, I'd say almost starting in October, we were doing almost six to seven days a week morning meetings, um, sometimes even coming into the office up until Black Friday to make sure that our ship was running so tight in terms of visibility of what was coming inbound, what was what shipments might be delayed, how do we pass that information on to the different buying teams or the consumer. And so, you know, I would just say that the, the standard was so high that that 24 hours, seven days a week mentality exposed me to at what level can your supply chain operate if you put that kind of attention into it? Mm, Absolutely. Well, and it sounds like your key lessons there were just running a tight ship, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, it it was, it was amazing. I mean, our morning meetings were essentially that you would have the, and I led a lot of them, which was amazing, but the CEO and the COO and other sort of leaders of the group were there. And what I really enjoyed about that is you had the senior leaders in one room, you start your morning, you have all of your, 
your sort of your data, your metrics, and you can sort of address right there in the morning that, hey, these are the things that are potentially at risk. And you have the person in the room that you can say, okay, buying team, can you go check to see if the vendor can send XYZ or, hey, planning department, do we have more budget for XYZ? And you can actually, by the by that afternoon, if not the following day, have an update. So we were able to move at such a speed and efficiency that allowed us, I think, as a team across departments to really function as that sort of tight ship, like you, you know, you sort of said, but that means everyone has to bring their A game. And we saw a lot of great obstacles. We overcome a lot of great obstacles because of that, because of the way that we were able to run those meetings and, and really call attention to the urgent needs and then get action done within 24 hours. And just to point out that, because it'll prepare us later, the global travels that you were doing, going to China, going to different places, also opened your eyes to a lot of unsavory things, the unfair labor practices, poverty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that there's no way to get around it. I mean, we visited some of the factories when we were there, and um, I'm not talking true production lines, right? You have one product going from one person to the next to do that one little incremental thing to the product. We saw the dormitories that they sleep in. We saw the conditions of the workers. And you know that when you go to these factory visits, you know that they're preparing in advance and they're showing you that they're best foot forward. And, and that's just, that's sort of a given. But yeah, the reality was there. You, you know, we, we quickly learned that many times these jobs are, are just a couple of years. People come in from the rural areas to, and on the, they're usually on the younger side and they go in, they try to make as much money as they can, but they burn out, they get sick. It's a very short term kind of spurt of sort of time for these workers. And you realize kind of, you know, it's it becomes very apparent that for, for a company like Walmart to get the margins it has, this type of business, this type of sort of operation, you know, becomes sort of big part of it to kind of start thinking about ways to improve the lives of these workers and the impact to, to a company like Walmart and thinking about the impact on the margins, knowing that Walmart's all about everyday low prices for people that really are in need, you know, that there was a, just a, such a conflict. And I really struggled. I mean, I, I, I was at Walmart for almost four years and I used to always, you know, meet with the CEO and, and, you know, he was just a brilliant, brilliant person. And I used to always say for walmart.com, I was like, you know, I understand the great work we were doing that we're helping everyday Americans and, and not even just Americans, it was around the world, Walmart, but everyday low prices. But I used to always say, but at what cost, like at what cost are we doing this? Because how does it really justify what's happening at the factory level? And to the workers that are actually making this possible. And so I, I really struggled and I, I'm so grateful for my time there. But I also, at the time, sustainability wasn't necessarily a big part of Walmart. And, and it was hard for me to really reconcile that challenge. I want to be conscious of time, but I, you took a break at some point. I know you went on to, to King's Lane, but you also then just took a break, right, to, to kind of decompress. Tell us a little bit about that backpacking yeah, trip yeah. you took. <laughs> yeah. Through well, South America. Exactly. I'm a huge advocate of travel. I, you know, I backpacked around Costa Rica and Panama after college um, for about seven months. I studied abroad in Spain. I became fluent in Spanish. So for me, you know, when I was at Walmart after about that four-year stint and had been working pretty crazy, I turned 30 and I said, you know what? I'm going to just go and explore and reflect and see. So I went on my own. I, I knew not a single person. And I, I decided to go to Brazil, Chile, and Peru. And that's it. I just showed up. I, 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 I maybe booked two nights in a hotel my first days in, in Rio. And then I said, I'll figure out the rest on my own. And I did. And I was able to, to meet some friends down there. I actually did a little bit of interviewing, um, meeting some, I ended up having some friends of friends who were doing tech stuff and all of that down in, in, in Brazil and in also in, in Chile. 
and um, just sort of interviewing and trying to get a sense of, you know, what's the startup scene in, in some of these communities. And so it was just a fascinating time to see what was happening around the world. And I was just so happy to see how other countries were approaching things and, and the vibe there. So it was amazing. And I, and I, you know, climbed Machu Picchu. I did like a five-day track. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was glorious. And, and I was very fortunate that when I came back from that, you know, not necessarily having a job set up, that my old boss from walmart.com was now the VP of operations at One Kings Lane, which was at the time a very hot startup. It had just closed their series A. Uh, Reed Hoffman was one of their angel investors. They were getting Kleiner Perkins and Greylock to invest. So it was it was really a darling of, of the Silicon Valley. And I was able to join pretty quickly and helped um, help my boss really build that operations team. And again, re- referencing all the things that I had learned up until that point in terms of how do you build a great team that can really handle the startup environment, but also bring bre- best practices in terms of operations and supply chain. Absolutely. And and it sounds like, I mean, after that experience, I mean, that's really what motivated you to build GoodOps and GoodList, which we'll talk about too. But talk a little bit more about GoodOps. Maybe share who, who is it? What is it? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, so, you know, basically after my time in San Francisco and, and One Kings Lane, I moved to New York City and um, and pretty quickly after that decided to start my own consulting business. And and really it was to marry the things around One Kings, the, the conversation I had around Walmart, which is around, you know, how do you have great supply chain operations, but still take care of people and planet? And mm-hmm. I knew that the only way I was going to be able to do that back in 2012, was was really doing it on my own. Good Ops, basically, the early days of Good Ops was right around that time of my consulting work. And so what we really tried to do is exactly that. We tried to actually infuse these best practices of supply chain, sort of the three things I mentioned, right? So time, quality, and cost, but with sustainability in mind and, mm-hmm. and throughout the entire process. So that, that goes down to paying workers, right? The workers throughout your supply chain, not just in your HQ, which is what happens a lot of times with brands, but really think about your entire supply chain as an extension of your own business, which in many ways are. Many times brands don't even know they're the suppliers that are actually making their goods because they're their second, third, fourth tier suppliers way down the line. So right. Goodon really believes that if you want to actually, especially in a time of COVID, if you want to have a stable supply chain, if you want to make sure that you're not going to necessarily, you're going to be able to sort of persevere and be resilient through some of these big changes that are going to happen, whether it's climate related or other crises within countries, whether it's political or not, that you have your workers in stable environments. And so that's really a big part of where we think about the business case for sustainability. The more stable your workers are, the more stable your business is going to be. And that really comes to stability for us really comes down to wages, health, and safety. So those are the three sort of pillars. And then on the environmental side, of course, we feel that the resources of this planet, we know there's a race against the clock, 2030. If if you're paying attention to the UN SDGs, that we know that this is so critical to to how we survive as, as as a sort of as a planet. And so it's really important for you know as good ops to really and help our brands and our clients understand that when you're thinking about your product line, there may be products that you're going to have to cut out or remodel or revise based on the resources that you're using. And I think nowadays you're seeing a lot more of that consciousness coming into it. But I think in a post-COVID world, you're going to have consumers continue to care about these things more because they're feeling the threat, right? Like they're especially this next generation, they're feeling threat all around them, and mm. if they. That they see brands being callous and careless with the resources that they're using in the planet, destroying ecosystems, rainforests, the animals in these ecosystems that are getting displaced. 
you're going to see entire systems continue to break down. You're going to see the impacts of climate change, and you're going to continue to see massive disruption in the livelihoods of people, which we're already seeing. And so we really try to think about, you know, how do we restructure? How do we recreate some of these product lines? How do we think about a better way of doing business for these brands to really capitalize on a lot of the innovation that's actually happening? So whether it's different kind of packaging, whether it's different kind of components, that's a big part of it. Or using technology, advanced technologies right, around, so for example, blockchain as a, as a way for better visibility and transparency into who your your supplier partners are. So Divya, give us an example of maybe a client that you've worked with and how does that process work and, and what was the result of it for them? Yeah. So for example, you know, we have a fashion brand that um, hired us to basically help him know if his marketing claims, his social impact marketing claims around helping women in the supply chain overcome poverty was actually true. And what he first asked us to do was tell us, tell him which standard or certification out there can actually measure that. And through the analysis of over 400 standards and marks out there in the in, in the industry, across industries, I should say, mm-hmm. there wasn't one that actually could measure that specific goal around are women actually improving their lives through his supply chain. And so we actually created our own assessment that really basically measured all the different aspects of the livelihoods of these workers. And ultimately, you know, we were asked by him, is there a, is there a silver bullet that basically that we could really rally around? And we ultimately came up with paying a living wage. That if you really want to change the lives of workers, especially women, you need to pay them a living wage, not fair wage, not minimum wage, but a living wage. And so that framework, um, we were able to actually execute that down on the ground in Ethiopia by actually going to each of the suppliers that he had in his supply chain and actually did the assessment. And, and you know, it was fascinating to see that some of the suppliers and one particular that was sort of getting recognized in local communities for actually helping women was, was essentially an exploitation sweatshop that was taking advantage of HIV positive women. And so this is something that we actually tried to address and tried to get that supplier to sort of do some sort of corrective action. And they actually kind of denied it and severed relationships, severed the relationship with the brand. Whereas another supplier was um, these two young sisters who were taking on their parents' business and they were sort of doing business as usual from sort of another generation. And we kind of opened their eyes to sort of saying, listen, if you do infuse more socially responsible practices like paying a living wage, having better, healthier and safer working conditions, you'll actually attract more business. And they actually turned their business around and ended up getting more business from our brand partner, actually became the, the most sort of sourced from supplier. And so, so it really worked out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As you're working with these companies, do you find that the, would you say that the majority of these bigger brands are wanting to do this? Or do you feel that, uh, you know, just we're still far behind in that area and so many people need to come to the table? You know, it really comes down to the leadership. It's always, um, I'd say, a top-down initiative. If the founder or CEO gets it, then 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 it actually happens. The, the challenge is that many times you have a discrepancy between maybe some of the the management, even at the director level, that get it and that want to do it and have great ideas. But if they're if the, if the top level or the top tier is not necessarily making it a priority, it sort of runs into a lot of a lot of problems. And so we really try to help at all levels do some of the, I would say, the um, learning and development around these conversations, really thinking through change management is like, how do you really show this as a business case? And we, we are seeing this grow. There's a lot of big claims out there. You can look at the Global Compact. You can see all these brands and companies that have made huge sustainability goals, but how they're going to achieve it, we really strongly believe is, is in the supply chain. And we include the supply chain as being your suppliers not just your business, your proper business, that's your HQ. 
Right. And that leads, I mean, you, you then did something about it and created a marketplace to help suppliers. Tell tell us about, this is called Goodlist. You want to tell us more about it? Yeah. So Goodlist, so we're in in prototype right now, but it's a sustainable sourcing platform for brands to find environmentally and socially responsible suppliers. And so the idea here is that we have a lot of suppliers that are really passionate about doing good, whether it's um, to their workers or to the environment, but how do they get, how do they market themselves, right? And, and, And there's all these brands that are trying to say, okay, we want to make all these big sustainability goals, but who, which suppliers are actually going to help us achieve this? Because they might find when they do their own supply chain assessment, they don't necessarily have the suppliers in place that can actually perform those things. So Goodless is a marketplace to really connect these brands to these suppliers to really help them achieve the goals and also hopefully make better business decisions around sustainability. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it, and it's substantial. You've got 24,000 suppliers in it so far. Yeah, exactly. And these are also about 24,000 suppliers that are already working with some of the biggest fashion brands in the world. So in some ways, they've already been vetted in terms of, of quality and time and, and, um, and efficiency and things like that. But what we're now trying to do is really provide a full profile on these suppliers that include the sustainability data as well. So going forward, what are the biggest challenges that you're working on right now? So I think right now, in, you know, in the time of COVID, there's a, there's almost a, a feeling of some some companies are retracting and maybe re, recalibrating their priorities because they're just trying to some of them are just trying to survive. Mm. And so I think that there's a little bit of a conversation happening in the sustainability communities around really keeping this top of mind is sort of this is the path to resilience. The sustainability actually is the way that you should be rebuilding. And so, you know, these are the conversations we're having with brands to try to get them to as they're sort of getting their education on this to really realize that, listen, the only way that you're going to more threats are going to come, more crises, climate issues, things like that are going to come. Right. The better relationships you have with your suppliers and better by mean equal, you know, equal sort of respectful relationship with your suppliers, which means paying well, paying on time, not backing out on contracts on things like that, you're going to have a much better chance of actually dealing with this moving forward. And and kind of some of the things I mentioned earlier, the consumers are going to be paying more attention. Investors are paying more attention. I don't know if you realize, but some of the ESG funds performed better in a, in a, during COVID than the non-ESG funds. And so we're actually uh-huh. seeing a better performance in, in some of these businesses. And employees are going to care. So, you know, all the key stakeholders really do want to see companies paying more attention to this space. I think right now the biggest challenge is just really kind of getting these companies to start making those big decisions and you know moving a little bit faster in terms of rebuilding their supply chains accordingly. Yeah. And that's where the education part is so critical because they're not seeing this as profitable now. So, but they're not looking at it from the long term and how it's going to actually help them to be more profitable. Yeah. And I think the conversations are starting to shift a little bit. I think as more, more data and more case studies come out, businesses are starting to see that it actually is more profitable to be more socially mm-hmm. responsible and environmentally more responsible. But it's just a matter of having more use cases and studies kind of coming out to, to exemplify that. I think the more we can get the word out that actually your business will be more profitable, the more sustainable you are, I think the more businesses will be ready to kind of come on board. But it, it is taking a little bit of time. Yeah. Okay. But you're, you're doing it, which is awesome. <laughs> We're doing it. So, so I know we, we've got a, a few more minutes and I, and I do want to ask you, what's the best advice, Devia, that you've ever gotten and how did it change you? Ooh, the best advice I've ever gotten, I guess, personally, you know, it's, it's being grateful for what you have. I think it's probably 
the way that we can, given everything that's going on and how much, how many more challenges, unexpected challenges that we're all sort of facing, I think gratitude is one of the best ways to center yourself and, and to realize what you have and taking stock of that. And then being able to then with that move forward and, and give and be, be selfless and be able to offer to others. Because I think when we get so caught up in our own needs and what we don't have and all of that, you're almost become so, so insular and, and kind of that negativity or that sort of those challenges sort of overwhelm you. When in reality, if you really are more grateful for what you have and show gratitude, I think you're able to give more. And, and I think we've seen a lot of studies that say that people, when people give, they're actually in general happier. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you can't be, I remember my mother telling me early on, if you're feeling grateful, you can't feel resentful or angry at the mm, same time. That's great. That's true. Oh. So how do you manage to juggle this all? I mean, you're running a business, you're traveling, you've got a three and a half year old, uh, beautiful girl. How do you do this? So it's, it's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) I think having a, a, well, I have a great partner. So that really does help in terms of just the support and the ability to sort of get that emotional support to, to also be able to say that, okay, I can do it. I think, I think as a woman, you know, and, and someone who, who, just wants to be a great mother, as well as also has a lot of ambition. You know, she, my daughter's very young. She's, she's actually two and a half. And, and it's one of those things where I really, I try to just, she's my motivation, right? I mean, I, I want to make a better world for the world that she's going to grow up in. I want her to also see that her mother is working and, and working towards great things that are improving the world. And there's a lot of sleepless, <laughs> sleepless <laughs> nights. you know, that everything can't be done perfectly. And there's a lot of moments that I think, wellness and and health sometimes are not prioritized enough. And I think that's something I can work better on, but she's my motivation. And I I feel that if I have an education and I have a network and I have access and I have an idea, it's my duty to, to try to, to try to make the world a better place. And, um, and it just inspires me to to keep doing that. That's wonderful. And your, your story is inspirational. We're at the end of the show and I feel like I could listen to you for, for hours more. <laughs> but Divya, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your excellent insights. And we just wish you the best of everything and everything that you're taking on here. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for having me. It was a real pleasure getting to know you and, um, and to be able to, to share more about my journey. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks. And for more information about Divya D'Amato and Good Ops, go to, where should they go? Well, they can go to Good Ops, so G-O-O-D-O-P-S dot co, so dot C-O, or you can also go to Good List, also G-O-O-D-L-I-S-T dot co. (laughs) So we're two co's. (laughs) (laughs) And then of course, come and find me on LinkedIn, Divya D'Amato. Please come in and, and say hello. And I really look forward to hearing from anybody who's interested in learning more about me or, or the work that we're working on. Terrific. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. And we look forward to our next show. To all our listeners out there, stay tuned for more great stories with amazing women. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.